Hey guys, Veronica, Andrew, and Nate here. We are Foodies Watching Movies, a podcast dedicated to awesome movies, great food, and that's about it. Check us out on the JIC Network at www.journeyintocomics.com. Maybe throw some money over to our Patreon so we can eat this week. And now your feature presentation. What on earth is that? It's a Journey Into Comics Network production! Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to episode 62 of Poor 360. I am your host, Andrew Porno. Thank you for joining me here on another Quarantined Tuesday. Now, for those of you who... Well, everyone's kind of living under a rock these days or living in your homes because a lot of us are under stay-at-home orders or self-quarantine or all this, that, and the other. And some people aren't working. Some people are working remote. Some people are still going to their job because they are... The lucky few who are deemed uh, essential business, either um, people who work in grocery stores, um, general supplies chain, warehouses, all of that, or are the the many people that we thank regularly who are the healthcare workers, the ones that are truly in the line of fire, and for that I commend them and um, hope they can stay safe and healthy, and hopefully they're still able to get access to the, the PP they need, because I know... Um, some people are out there not just buying up all the stuff and it's made a shortage of supply for people who actually need it, not just people who are just staying home or in their car wearing a mask and all of that. But I want to thank you guys for joining me here. Uh, this is another slightly weird episode just because it's been kind of quiet. Besides the coronavirus, which is the, the biggest news, there's not been a lot else going on. Now, I'm going to apologize in advance if I cough. I don't have anything. It's just uh, a tickle in my throat and probably something I ate earlier and I just can't seem to shake it. So if I if I drink like I'm doing now, I apologize. But yeah, uh, but not kind of that we're all hunkered down. We're kind of trying to stay um, away from public. And we do wait in public. The CDC recommends we do wear masks. I do have a mask. I have not worn it out in public yet. Uh, the few times I have gone out in public, like, I had to get stuff for a lawnmower. So I ran into Home Depot. I f- followed the six-foot rule. I got in, got two things I needed. I got in the car. I got out of there uh, as quick as possible and made sure I sanitized around my hands as soon as I got back in the car. Got home, washed my hands. <coughs> um, and I've made a couple, like, odd then trips, like, get groceries, get all that. But just trying to minimize the amount of public interaction as you can. Um... Wife and I still walk uh, Max every day, usually around lunchtime. Good to get out, get the fresh air, especially because the weather's been really nice. Uh, it's supposed to rain, at least here in the Illinois and in the Midwest, um, for the next couple days. So getting actually a chance to mow is going to be problematic, but um, but so far it hasn't been too crazy, and um, I'm hoping to actually be able to mow, because the grass is getting very unruly. I think it's raining now. I can't quite tell. I'm, I'm assuming it is. I just haven't been outside to confirm 100%. But it's it's definitely weird. Um, I know a lot of us are using this time to kind of... Like uh, what Nate thought about with, uh, with this, hunkering down, doing stuff with your families, um, with your children, um, really being around for them. I know 
for a lot of kids right now, they're kind of back in a semi-school mode um, this week and really last week as well. Kids are doing kind of lessons. They're uh, they're not on spring break anymore, and there's kind of more of a structure. Like Liz, who's a teacher now, <coughs> has a has class. She kind of does like an online thing with kids, so it's it's good and helpful. And <coughs> oh man, I cannot seem to shake this. I don't want to mess up having to re-record this, so uh, thank you for bearing with me. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been an interesting time, and uh, one thing that I feel like has kind of fallen through the cracks with everything that's going on, and the fact that the coronavirus is the number one news story, there is not really anything else, is that the election, which prior to this, besides the, the impeachment, was the, the overarching news story, the thing that was talked about by a lot of people. And it's kind of gone quiet since then, like... Um, Trump's still being Trump. He's doing his daily addresses. He's still <coughs> still touting this is like a trying to show off that he's like a wartime president now. He's trying to kind of frame it that way, or people are trying to frame it that way because he hasn't really had his his kind of moment like that. And even though someone memed the mission accomplished with uh, Donald Trump, which is famous for uh, George W. Bush um, when they won or when we won, um, but yeah, it's a uh, but we've seen, like, uh, Biden and uh, Bernie have done, like, addresses. They've raised money. It's been it's been time, but it's otherwise been quiet. I know uh, a lot of uh, elections have been postponed. There's been some changes there. And, uh, unfortunately, what happened earlier uh, involving the Wisconsin, uh, the Supreme Court um, tonight uh, ruled that Wisconsin cannot accept absentee ballots postmarked after its voting day of tomorrow. So, uh, in a 5-4 vote along ideological lines, a conservative justice decided with Republican state lawmakers by halting a lower court order to extend absentee voting to April 13th, a measure that would have expanded options for avoiding in-person voting amid the coronavirus pandemic. It's not the date by which ballots may be cast by voters, not just received by the municipal clerks, but cast by voters for an additional six days after the scheduled election day Fundamentally altered the nature of this election, Judge Kapanov wrote for the majority, saying that the lower district off-court erred by providing such relief. This came just after the Wisconsin Supreme Court overturned Governor Tony Evers' executive order to postpone Tuesday's vote. So in confusion and chaos around a critical election featuring a Democratic presidential primary and a pivotal state Supreme Court seat. Evers had sought to push back the in-person voting date until June 9th and said that all mail and absentee ballots sent up to that date should be counted. But the pair of rulings from the top courts and highest Wisconsin state court on Monday largely returned things to a status quo with in-person voting and a postmark deadline set for the following day, despite a flurry of last-minute legal and political wrangling and a virus that infected some 2,500 and killed nearly 80 in the state. Ballots that are postmarked by Tuesday may be accepted up to April 13th, uh, wrote Kavanaugh, who was joined by Justice Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsh, and Samuel Alito, and Chief Justice John Roberts. The majority said it intervened with reluctance. <clears throat> the court would prefer not to do so, but when a lower court intervenes and alters the election rules so close to the election date, our precedents to get to the court as appropriate should correct the error. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote a dissent that was joined by fellow liberal justice Stephen Bayer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan. The district court, acting in view of the dramatically evolving COVID-19 or COVID-19 uh, pandemic, entered a preliminary injunction to safeguard the Availability of absentee voting in the Wisconsin spring election. Ginsburg wrote, The court now intervenes at the 11th hour to prevent voters who 
who have timely requested absentee ballots from casting their votes. Under the district court's order, they would be able to do so even if they receive their absentee ballot in the days immediately following election day, they could return it. The majority stays in with the majorities stay in place, this will not be possible either way, we'll have to brave the polls, endanger their own and other safety, or they'll lose the right to vote through no fault of their own. Uh, ben Wickler, chair of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, slammed the decision. I'm about to explode, he tweeted. The five GOP U.S. Supreme Court justices just overruled two lower courts and shut off extended absentee voting in Wisconsin. He added, the Supreme Court of the United States legislated from the bench today. Following Trump's team's orders on writing a new election law to disenfranchise untold thousands of Wisconsin voters and co-sign an unknown number of Wisconsin knights to their deaths. <clears throat> so this kind of sucks. I understand... Um, that um, voting needs to be not changed. They're trying to make sure this doesn't involve more manipulation at the ballots, but the fact that people are already scared to leave their houses, people are going to be less inclined to vote, and absentee was offering them a chance to still exercise their civic duty. And now we're going to see people either going to have to think to sit, wait in a line, I don't know how they're going to six feet in a polling place, using things that everyone's touched. I've been through a polling place. I know there's just like a wad of pens. They're handing you cardboard sleeves that everyone else has had. Your ballot's the only thing that's relatively clean. Even that was touched by the person who handed it to you. Even with gloves and everything else, you're still going to be exposed to a lot of people. You're in a confined space, like a uh, like a library, a church basement, a school. It's uh, You're just going to be around a lot of things that people have been in and out of, and it's just not the best thing to do when we're trying to prevent, like, even if you wear a mask, even if you wash your hands before and after, it's still you're exposing yourself to a lot of unnecessary risk just to practice your civic duty. And it would be nice if uh, they were given some reprieve there, but it seems interesting. And I really hope this isn't kind of what we're going to see the rest of the year with the other upcoming uh, primaries. We are still in a really tough Democratic primary fight, despite what some people think. It is not a done deal for Biden being the nominee. He's considered the presumptive nominee because of the amount of delegates he has, but the race is far from over. Um, obviously, we're going to see the rest of the primary shakeoff, how the convention goes. The convention was moved. I've heard talk of it. It's virtual. I didn't read too much into it, so I can't, unfortunately, um, speak to the validity of that, but that's something I have heard uh, through the grapevine, through something I saw on Twitter or online. I'm not sure. I didn't dig too much into it prior to recording this episode. I did see something. Um, it's more of an opinion piece, but I think it is relevant to kind of what's going on with the election and what's going on with everything related to the coronavirus. So uh, the title, this is from The Atlantic, is How Donald Trump Could Steal the Election. This is by Jeffrey Davis, who's a professor of political science at the University of Maryland in Baltimore County. Um, it says the president can't simply cancel the fall balloting, but his state-level allies could still deliver him a second term. So even under a normal president, the coronavirus pandemic would result, present real challenges to the 2020 American election. Everything about in-person voting could be dangerous, waiting in line, touching a voting machine, and working in polling. Uh, polling in polling stations all run afoul of social distancing mandates. Already, Maryland, Kentucky, Georgia, and Louisiana have postponed their presidential primaries, while Wyoming, New York, and Ohio have altered their voting procedures. Of course, other demo democracies face similar problems. The United Kingdom has postponed local elections for one year, which is interesting. But under President Trump, the possibility for other coronavirus could wreak havoc on the election are all the more concerning. This is not a president who cares about the sanctity of the electoral process. After all, 
He has never seemed particularly concerned about Russia's efforts to manipulate the 2016 outcome, presumably because they were on his behalf. And he was impeached for demanding Ukrainian help for his re-election efforts. Moreover, the president was repeatedly joked about staying in office past the end of his second term and has frequently embraced authoritarian leaders and policies. Making matters even worse, the Republican Party more broadly displayed a willingness to bend the rules for its own political gain, frequently trying to suppress the vote, especially minority votes, purging voter rolls, and implementing aggressive, racially-based gerrymanders. Americans simply cannot trust this administration will preserve the integrity of the 2020 election. <clears throat> this puts America in a very dangerous position. Legal protections for the election do exist and are strong. The Constitution and federal law require the election of a president this November and state that the president's term ends the following January. The Supreme Court has repeatedly held that once states grant their residents the right to vote, doing so becomes a fundamental right. 49 states recognize the right to vote in their state constitutions. And 26 guarantee the election must be free and open. Any attempt by the president or state legislators to deprive people of the right to vote in order to ensure Trump's re-election would blatantly violate those rights. But a lot could still go wrong, especially at the state level. The dangers begin with the fact that regardless of what people believe, the Constitution does not give Americans the right to vote for their president. Rather, the Constitution says that a college of electors vote for the president. And Article 2 of the Constitution gives nearly unlimited power to decide how those electors are chosen. In the early years of the American Republic, many state legislators decided which presidential candidate the state's electors would support. South Carolina used this method until 1868. Today, all 50 states grant their residents the right to vote for president, and the people's votes determine which electors from which state will select the next president. However, any state could change its law and instead allow its legislators to decide which electoral will choose the next president. In other words, states have a lot of power in deciding how the election will run. Today, Republicans control 30 state legislators and Democrats only 19, with one state divided. Nebraska technically has nonpartisan legislators, but it's reliably red state, so I include it with the Republican states. The red state legislators control 305 electoral votes, and only 270 are needed to secure the presidency. Presumably, most red states, if not all, would appoint electors who would elect Trump for another four-year term. Of those 30 states, 22 also have Republican governors, which means in those states there would be no Democratic governor to veto Republican legislation, taking away the people's opportunity to vote for president. Those 22 states represent 219 electoral college votes, perilously close to the 270 required for Trump to be re-elected. Could states really deprive America of the right to vote for their president? In Bush v. Gore, conservative majority on the Supreme Court held that the state can take back the power to appoint electors at any time, and the court is even more conservative today than it was in 2000, as Justice Brett Kavanaugh has replaced Justice Anthony Kennedy. The more complicated question is not whether states can do this, but whether they would. Republican lawmakers have been steadfastly loyal to Trump throughout his tumultuous tenure. Sorry, that's kind of a mouthful. Tumultuous, tumultuous tenure. If Trump were to ask states to appoint electors instead of having an election, they certainly might follow his request, especially those states where the president enjoys wide popularity. In 24 of the 30 states with Republican legislators, a majority of people approve of the president's job performance. According to the last month's Gallup poll, the states control 224 electoral votes, enough to throw the election results into doubt. States could also wreak havoc on the election by not taking steps to not to prepare for voting during pandemic. If only a few states allowed their legislators to appoint electors or postponed electoral selections indefinitely, the Democrats would result in no candidate receiving a majority of electoral college votes. This is a real concern if no candidate wins a majority of electors, the, 20, the 12th Amendment empowers the House of Representatives to decide who will be president. Although the House is controlled by Democrats, predicting the outcome is not that simple. 
The amendment requires the House to choose the president by voting as states, not as individual members. So instead of 435 individual votes, there would be 50 state votes. The amendment does not say how the representative for each state should decide their state's votes. If the current House were tasked with selecting the next president and states with more Republicans than Democrats in their delegation voted for Trump, he would win 25 votes. Three states have more Democratic House members than Republicans, so the Democratic candidate will likely receive 23 votes. Florida and Pennsylvania are evenly split between Democrats and Republicans, leaving their presidential votes up in the air. Whether the District of Columbia would be allowed to vote at all in the circumstance is not entirely certain. The text of the 12th Amendment suggests that only states can vote, but the 23rd Amendment gave D.C. electors who vote for president and perform such duties as required by the 12th. If Trump tries to use the coronavirus to manipulate the election, and if states help him do so, disputes may arise about whether a state's presidential electors are valid. The kind of dispute happened after the 1876 presidential election. Democrat Samuel Tilden won the popular vote by 3% over his Republican opponent, Rutherford B. Hayes. As a result, Tilden took 184 electoral votes to Hayes' 165. However, the parties in four states could not agree on which candidate won the 20 remaining electoral votes days before inauguration in a sorted backroom deal. Democrats lead to allow all 20 of the electors cast vote for Hayes in exchange for assurance the Republican administration withdrew all federal troops from southern states. After this debacle, Congress passed laws to deal with disputes, disputed states of electors. Then in 1933, the 12th Amendment gave Congress more power to establish rules for counting electoral votes and resolving disputes. The resulting law still gave states almost complete power to determine the outcome of a presidential election. However, it requires Congress to accept electors if the state had followed the proper procedure to resolve any disputes and certified them six days before a specified date in December, the so-called safe harbor date. During the controversy over Florida's presidential vote in 2000, the Supreme Court's conservative justice argued that because Florida could not manually recount its ballots before the elected election safe harbor date, December 12th of 2000, trying to do so would risk disenfranchising all Florida voters. The ruling in Bush v. Gore decided the election for the Republican candidate George W. Bush. Dissenting justices pointed out that Congress would be free to accept Florida's electors even if the state certified them after that date. <clears throat> After all, they noted in 1960, Hawaii selected two different states of electors, or two different slates of electors, and Congress chose to count a slate that was appointed well after the safe harbor date. Under these statuses, or statutes, sorry, if some red states decided to appoint electors, perhaps at Trump's prompting in light of the coronavirus and voters challenged the validity of those electors, state decisions on that dispute would probably be conclusive as long as the state followed its legally prescribed procedures. Republicans control enough states to exceed or come very close to the 270 electoral votes required to elect a president. Despite these weaknesses, the Supreme Court's decision to protect <coughs> despite these weaknesses, the Supreme Court's decision to protect the quality of votes provides some safeguards. The court has ruled that once state legislators give people the right to vote in an election, they simply can, the state cannot interfere with the exercise of that right or dilute the weight of people's votes. In 1964, the Supreme Court considered whether Alabama's refusal to reapportion its legislative districts to reflect major changes in its populated, violated voters' rights. The most populous districts had up to 41 times the eligible voters of the least populous. The Supreme Court held that the electing our public officials in a free and unimpaired fashion is a bedrock of our political system, and for that Alabama had unconstitutionally diluted votes in the most populous districts. Two of the smaller districts had populations of between 13,000 and 15,000 people and sent two senators each to Alabama Senate. 
while the two largest districts had 300,000 and 600,000 people and sent only three senators each. Thus, the votes of people in the least populous in wider districts were many times more powerful than those of people in denser districts. With this ruling, voters in any state that were to deprive them of the right to vote for president could launch a powerful legal challenge claiming that claiming uh, that their right is equal voting power had been violated. They could argue their votes had been unconstitutionally diluted like those of the voters in Alabama because they would be able to express their preference for president only vicariously through voting for their state's representatives. The votes of those in nearby states voting directly for their state's presidential electors would be exponentially more powerful. America must protect the election from interference, not just Russian this time, but also domestic. Already proposal Already proposals exist to do so. On March 16th, Senators Amy Klobuchar, Democrat of Minnesota, and Ron Wyden, Democrat of Oregon, introduced the Natural Disaster and Emergency Ballot Act of 2020 <clears throat> to ensure the integrity of this year's election. The proposed law would encourage states to make early voting more widely available, make it easier, uh, make it much easier to vote by mail, and require states to create contingency systems for voting and counting ballots during a period of emergency. As these senators pointed out, the country is meant to elect 35 senators, 11 governors, and 435 House members, in addition to the president this November. Beyond implementing the reforms in this legislation, states should make mail-in absentee ballots universally available. Americans have successfully conducted elections in crisis. Voters went to the polls during the Civil War, World War II, and Vietnam. New Yorkers voted in municipal elections just two weeks after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. In this country, the right to vote is sacred. African Americans have risked and even sacrificed their lives to vote, and women struggled for more than a century to claim their right to do so. Taught of that legacy, we must confront the challenge and provide safe and easy ways for Americans to vote this November. And I agree with it 100%. I think what he says definitely rings true. I think it's something we have to pay attention to, and we have to make sure that Votes are counted that votes matter, that this can't be stolen or manipulated in a way to produce an outcome that wouldn't otherwise be made available. Uh, definitely encourage you guys to do your due diligence. If you've already voted, great. Like, I voted uh, a couple weeks back before, like, the day... Yeah, basically the day I got sent home for a stay-at-home order uh, was the day I voted. And then I know there's some other states, I think Indiana votes in a week or two i'm not exactly sure uh, i can double check i know i talked about it on a previous episode i don't know why that sounded a little british um yeah, the indiana primary is june oh they must have moved it it's june 2nd <clears throat> so they got some time hopefully things will be somewhat back to normal by then I know it's right now, I think the state home orders, at least in Illinois, only goes to the end of the month. So it would be nice if we could get back to life by then, but I honestly don't know. I'm hoping this doesn't extend too into the summer. Um, I know some people are already getting stir-crazed, and it's only been a few weeks. And it's going to be at least a few more weeks before the end of the current state home order, and it could be extended by then. Um, I don't know if we've hit our peak or our climax of this whole thing where we can start seeing and then i don't know how cyclical this will be either um definitely do your due diligence and um read up talk look at the cdc things they've uh the cdc website has a whole section on the coronavirus or covid19 with there's a uh there's a self-checker um which tells you kind of 
you can kind of, it's kind of like an automated thing you could put in like your symptoms you can put in kind of then it'll ask you some questions and let you know if you should look into further things there it has um ways you can keep you your house your pets yourself everything clean as ways to make your own mask because they don't want you using the ones made for medical professionals because obviously those are in short supply and we need to keep those it's definitely not uh our supply it's definitely everyone's supply so it needs to don't um we just go on the store. You don't need a full industrial or painters or whatever mask. Like I have one in the garage that I used um, when I was like cutting stuff and install dust and all that just to keep that out. I'm not going to wear that out. I have a cloth one. I'm going to use that. I really don't even want to, um, but it's just safer that way. <clears throat> but there's definitely things to check out there. There's a way to make um, way to sew your own mask. There's ways to make one without sewing. There's things like that. Um, I've heard that. Uh, the blue shop towels, uh, I have some just because I needed it for uh, the lawn mower and some stuff on my car. Apparently you can use that as a filter too because it does. it's um, a little stronger than cotton when it comes to that kind of stuff. I think you can put it as a layer or in between the layers to help. So that's something you can check out. But just wash your hands, take care of yourselves, do all of that. Um, there's one other thing I kind of wanted to talk about today. Um, and that involves the... Uh, the stimulus um, check that was passed as a part of the the relief bill. So it looks like um, the IRS will start uh, delivering the stimulus payments uh, starting April 9th, which I believe is Thursday. Um, if you're getting one, don't worry. It doesn't reduce your tax refund. You won't have to pay taxes on it. So that's, that's a good thing to know. This is from Business Insider. I looked into it. The one-time payment labeled by the government's relief bill as a recovery rebate and called an economic impact payment by the IRS is technically a refundable tax credit meant to offset your 2020 federal income taxes. That's the return taxpayers will file next spring for federal in earned incomes. Usually can't claim a tax credit until you file your taxes since you don't know what you owe until the year is over. Because of the severity of the national crisis, the government is giving qualifying taxpayers the credits early in the form of a cash payment. Even though the stimulus payment may feel and look like a tax refund, it's not. You still get your full tax refund next year and this year too, for that matter, as long as you file a tax return. The difference between a stimulus check and a tax refund. So, a tax refund means you pay too much of taxes throughout the year, whether through estimated quarterly payments or taxes withheld from your employer. When you get a tax refund, the government is returning what is rightfully yours. A tax credit reduces your tax bill on a dollar-for-dollar -dollar basis. It's like having a store credit at your favorite clothing shop. When you apply it to your total bill, it reduces what you owe. Some tax credits, like the coronavirus recovery rebate, are refundable. That means that you'll get the money back in cash even if you don't have enough tax liability to offset it. Importantly, a refundable tax credit will never reduce the size of your refund. It will only increase it. By applying a credit, you're just lowering the amount of taxes you owe. The amount you paid in tax throughout the year hasn't changed. The IRS will still need to settle the score. For example, if, you're, if your annual tax liability, the amount you owe based on your earnings is $10,000, but you pay a total of $11,000 through paycheck withholdings, you won't have an outstanding tax bill when you file your return. Instead, you'll be getting a $1,000 refund. If you're entitled to a refundable tax credit, like a coronavirus rebate, you'll get the full amount of that credit, even though your tax bill is zero. So in that situation, you get $1,000 refund plus the $1,200 stimulus check. If the credit were non-refundable, the remaining value wouldn't come back to you once your tax bill reached $0. Typically, you 
can have your refund seized if you owe back taxes, but that won't happen to your stimulus check. Even people with tax debt should be getting a stimulus payment if they're under the income thresholds, have a social security number, and aren't claimed as a dependent. The only people who could get their payment reduced because their debts are parents with outstanding child support. Huh, did not know that. Uh, how stimulus check calculated? Ideally, the U.S. government would make the stimulus payments based on the 2020 income figures since millions of people who were those gainfully employed last year are now out of jobs because of coronavirus containment measures and could need the cash. But the IRS is insisting, instead using the adjusted gross income list on the most recent tax return you filed, either 2019 or 2018, to determine the size of your payment. Americans who haven't filed a tax recent in recent years but get Social Security payments for retirement will also be paid the maximum amount of 1200 via direct deposit or the home address provided to their on their statements. <clears throat> Americans who generally aren't required to file tax returns because they don't earn enough money will get stimulus payments as well. Uh, TurboTax created a free online portal to help those people send their direct deposit information to the IRS. Again, since those payments are based on previous income, you might receive more or less money than intended on a current needs basis. While it won't help you today, experts say the IRS should allow taxpayers who didn't receive their payment to claim the credit on next year's returns if they can show that their 2020 income qualifies. So, interesting. And we already know that tax, um, the tax filing date has changed. Um, it's now July 15th. Uh, it's usually April 15th, I believe. I filed early. Um, my wife and I did, so... Yeah, so that's all kind of changed there. So, yeah, not too much else really to report. I just kind of want to give you guys an update on that. Uh, definitely uh, stay tuned for updates. I know um, a lot of people out there to kind of escape the isolation are come to um, be more creative. There's been a lot more podcasts out there, a lot more live streams, a lot more content that's out there to explore. We've seen, um, like Tyler and Nate were talking about yesterday, that we've seen... Um, a lot of the streaming platforms released more content. Um, Disney Plus has brought some movies that just left theaters or never even made it to theaters. So it's um, definitely good. And it's it's a shame what's going on with the movie theaters. I, for one, am a big fan. I can't wait. Um, Liz and I saw three movies um, right before everything shut down. We saw Birds of Prey, uh, The Invisible Man, and... Uh, the hunt before everything kind of came to a came to a screeching halt, um, but I can't wait to go back. Uh, I love movies. I love seeing movies in a theater. I love movie theater popcorn. I just I can't wait to be able to get back and enjoy that again. It's it's always a sense of escape. for me. Even I have movies at home and I can stream them on Netflix or Hulu or Disney Plus. All of that. Just the experience of being in a theater is just something I can't wait to get back to. And I know May first, um, the drive-in closest to me is opening supposedly. Never been to it. I kind of can't wait to be able to kind of... Hopefully, I don't know how the concessions will be with all this going on. Maybe if it's lightened up by then, it'll be better. But being able to sit, look at a big screen, see a movie, and actually be a driving because I've never done a drive-in before, so that's kind of something else I'm excited to try if it works out. But I have a feeling drive-ins are going to do really good business, even if a lot of the movie theaters now are not doing so great. But we'll kind of have to see how this all shakes out. Obviously... Stay home, stay safe, don't go out if you have to. I know that's advice I need to follow for myself because I have made some unnecessary trips uh, in the past couple weeks and be mindful, but I am obeying the the rules, the six feet. Um, kind of don't get in groups. I've seen while driving out, like, kids, like, school-age kids, like, out in groups with friends, like, people having kids over, like, at their house. It's just, 
Yeah, if you have friends over to like stay at home, you're still not helping anything because you invited a bunch of people into your home that have been in the world, at least between when they got to your world. Like, I don't know. It's the same thing like if, let's say only one person in your household leaves and does anything. Like, maybe that's their job. They can't. They have to be, they have to go out. The rest of the family is still at the same risk that the guy is because whatever he gets, even if he comes home, washes his hand, changes his clothes, it's still a chance that he could bring something back with him. If he catches it, you're going to get it. Like, guarantee if I get something, Liz will have it. If Liz gets something, I'll have it. But we're trying to stay safe to avoid this kind of becoming an issue and just being cautious, being protective, making sure to, when you get home, uh, wash your hands, sanitize at the store, use, like, the wipes if you're getting groceries. A lot of them have uh, cart wipes and yeah, it's just being careful, being protected, trying to touch your face, which I know is hard. Like I feel like since I was told I, you shouldn't touch your face, I've touched it more. At least I'm more aware of how much I actually touch my face on a normal basis. Like the scratch of the nose, the scratch of the eye, like maybe like right now, like kind of feel itchy. Like it's just like when you think about something, you're just like, I need to touch and itch this or whatever. It's pretty crazy but i think that'll do it for poor through six for this week if you have any thoughts feedback comments please reach out to me um i'm definitely i'm stuck here so um i thought i was maybe gonna bring back poor through six on a weekly basis but some of the poor through six stuff can be kind of a downer and i just enjoy being a part of other podcasting events like the supercast if you want to laugh you want to relax if you want to kind of kind of have a good time definitely check out the two supercasts that have been out thus far they're great content. Um, you can find them on YouTube to see clips. You can see them on Facebook. It's just, don't check them out. They're also on where you can get all the podcasting stuff. I know another one's in the works or something tangentially related, at least another group gathering. I know we're trying to do something with foodies, so hopefully that happens soon. Uh, adulting might be coming back at some point this month. Um, I'd like to anyway. It's just uh, coordinating uh, with my co-host. Um, so we'll see when that happens. Uh, you'll be the first to know on here and the network and all of that. But stay safe, uh, protect yourself, protect your family. Um, try not to get too frustrated by all of this. I know with the weather nice and being stuck inside is not ideal. Um, but the sooner we can get through, the sooner we can get back to some semblance of what our lives were like before. But with that, that does it for episode 62 of Poor 360. I am Andrew Poor, and you guys... Have a great week. Enjoy the the whole quarantined world that we live in now. Bye, guys.